We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Father Vincent Michelli has been for many years a sought-after speaker and lecturer. He earned his doctorate degree in contemporary philosophy from Fordham University while stu studying under the world-famous Dr. Dietrich von Hildenbrand. He has taught at Spring Hill College, Loyola University in New Orleans, Gregorian and Angelicum Universities in Rome, also St. John's University in New York City. He is an author of The Antichrist, a recent bestseller which deals dramatically with the presence of the false messiah. He is also the author of Aset to Being, The Gods of Atheism, and Women Priests and Other Fantasies, all which have enjoyed great success. He has published numerous articles in journals and quarterlies, including the National Review and Faith and Reason. Bob Michelli is a featured speaker on the Drama of Truth television series, which is shown in several cities around the nation. He has debated three times America's most militant atheist, Madeleine Murray O'Hare. His latest book, which we have on sale here out at some of the booths on the outside, is The Roots of Violence. So without further ado, I give you Father Michelli. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be back in Detroit because I've come here so often to give wonderful, meet wonderful people and give talks. And also, I used to be on the J.P. McCarthy show, but I think he's gone down the way of all. Uh, leftists. Uh, he doesn't have a good priest on anymore, does he? You know, I was on at least three or four times. But one little correction. The book, The Roots of Violence, is not out yet. It's being published right now. Joe Sobrin is writing the preface. You, you read his columns uh, very well in uh, The Wanderer and also in National Review. Uh, they made a nice cover which shows the violence going on in the world today. And uh, it's, it should be out by either the end of this month or early November. So uh, uh, it's not yet available uh, as they finished. If the book is finished, but as they uh, finished the May con uh, fabricated book. Now, I try to, uh, I see many women here. I think the women, the women power may be one of the best uh, things to change uh, the, the slippery slide to... Uh, in, in the church, not only in the church, in America, the slippery slide down to a hedonistic society, I think women have to get angry and uh, do something about it. I'm reminded of uh, one story of uh, 
uh, a good priest friend of mine who said there were so many men getting to heaven that St. Peter decided he would uh, try to break up the uh, lines so that they could matriculate. He said those that are henpecked take one line, and that line seemed to go on forever, and there was one man in the other line, the non-henpecked line. And St. Peter went over and said, what on earth are you doing here? And he said, my wife told me to stand here. <laughs> So this is women power in heaven. Of course, we have our Blessed Lady, who is the most powerful of all women in heaven, fighting our cause, too. We have our Lady's heel and Satan's head, and Satan's head gets crushed under our Lady's heel. So we have great devotion to our Lady, and Catholics United for the Faith is famous for that. Usually when I give a talk, I try to observe three rules. I don't usually succeed in observing them, but I try. Anyway, I get A for effort. First rule is always remember the longer the spoke, the bigger the tire. And in, in Detroit, that should make common sense. See? <laughs> Second rule is if you don't strike oil in 10 minutes, quit boring. See? That should help. That should work better in Texas, I think. Yeah? And the third one is be bright, be brief, and be gone. See? And I'll promise that the last part of that. See? But the cradle of the people of God, why did... Pope Paul VI proclaimed the credo of the people of God at the close of the what he called the Year of Faith, which ended on June the 30th, 1987. Why did he proclaim that? Pope Paul gives us the answer. He says, and I quote, In making this profession of faith, we are aware of the disquiet which agitates certain modern quarters with regard to the faith. They do not escape the influence of the world being profoundly changed, in which so many certainties are being disputed or discussed. We see even Catholics allowing themselves to be seized by a kind of passion for, the ch for change and a kind of mania for novelty. The Church most assuredly has always the duty to carry on the effort to study more deeply and to present in a manner even better adapted to successive generations the unfathomable mysteries of God, rich for all in fruits of salvation. But at the same time, the greatest care must be taken while fulfilling the indispensable duty of research on the faith. The greatest care must be taken to do no injury to the teachings of Christian doctrine. For that would be to give rise, as is unfortunately seen in these days, to disturbance and perplexity in many faithful souls. So they're called quotes. So we see we have today in the church a tremendous amount of uh, chaotic thinking. It's, it's almost visceral thinking, you know. Many Catholics will say, and really they're Protestants at heart when they say this, Oh, never mind what the Pope says about contraception. Follow your own conscience, see. And, uh, well, as, as uh, Father, that theologian that I call him a, a, a Protestant liberal theologian, Father Curran says, well, premarital sex is all right if you have, you know, tender loving care for the person you're with. I mean, I think David had tender loving care for Bathsheba, but God punished him for committing the sin of adultery. So you have what I call today a group of porno theologians. See, 
That's a good name for them. They're porno theologians. <laughs> Who are telling people, well, now we've come of age, the Ten Commandments are no longer necessary, and, you know, do your own thing, and as long as you have, you know, a, a certain amount of conviction, personal conviction, your conscience is there, it's all right, but of course it's all wrong. It's, a, it's an erroneous conscience, and it's a wicked conscience, because the teaching of the church on many of these matters is quite clear. There's no doubt. And these people are rebelling. And being theologians, and even some bishops who go along with them, and telling people this is to lead people away from their salvation. St. Augustine has a good um, sermon on the role of the good shepherd. As a, of a, as a priest, he should be a good shepherd. He says, too many priests today, in his day, had the same problem we're having today. He said, feed on the sheep instead of feeding the sheep. See, And I think that's happening today. Too many uh, priests get popular with their new ideas, go to the college campuses, uh, have thousands of students listen to their heresies, and get big, big uh, honorariums for that while the students stand up and cheer as if they just heard the last word from uh, God himself. So we're in a very chaotic area. That's why we have to have the creator of the people of God. We place our unshakable confidence in the Holy Spirit, not in the latest new theologian who's come out with a book like McBride or uh, McCormick or Kung, they're not our guides. The Holy Spirit who speaks through the Holy Father and through the magisterium, those bishops that are in harmony with the teaching of the Holy Father. If they step out of line, then they are leading us astray. Remember, only the Holy Father has personal infallibility. All other bishops do not have personal infallibility. They enjoy infallibility of the church when they teach in harmony with what the Holy Father is teaching. Then they constitute a valid, authentic magisterium. Once they step out of that, as Newman tells us in his great work, most of the heresies that have come in the church have come from theologians and bishops. Just read the history of the church. Go on back to Arianism. They were all bishops and high priests and with the faithful that saved the church from Arianism. As a matter of fact, 80% of the bishops at that time fell into the heresy of Arianism, which denied the divinity of Christ. And it took the popes and a council, Council of Nicaea, to condemn that heresy. But notice, it was the faithful. One of the things the faithful did, which I think, I don't know, I'm not suggesting that you do that today because I'll probably be accused of uh, not only writing a book on the roots of violence, but of being a violent man myself. What the... What the uh, faithful did, a heresy that sprung out off the uh, heresy of Arianism, if Christ is not God, then Mary's not the mother of God. She's the mother of some creature. So, the uh, Arian heretics were saying, were teaching, they were logical. Christ is not divine, Mary's not the mother of God, so we had to have another council, the council of Ephesus. And all the bishops got together, and they were in the church, and the faithful locked them in. They wouldn't let them out. They said, you don't come out until you define the truth that Mary is theotokos. That's the Greek word meaning mother of God, bearer of God. And so, in order to get out and get fresh air, I guess, uh, and uh, to uh, meet with the Catholics outside, however, the bishops were favorable to 
the uh, definition, but just to make sure the faithful decided to take things into their own hands. I'm not suggesting that you uh, lock up bishops or uh, or anybody. So you can, but that's a fact of history, see. So we place our confidence in the Holy Spirit, the soul of the church the Holy Spirit is, and in theological faith upon which rests the life of the mystical body. We know that souls await the word of the vicar of Christ, and we respond to that expectation with the instructions which we regularly give. This is Paul VI still speaking in his introduction to uh, the credo of the people of God. So he's speaking in the solemn we as the Holy Father and the teacher of the church. But today we are given an opportunity on the feast of day of the martyrdom of saints Peter and Paul, apostles and pillars of the church, to make a more solemn utterance this profession of our faith. Why are, now then I ask, question, why are, quotes, why are some of the so many certainties being disputed and discussed which allow even Catholics to be seized by a kind of passion for change and novelty in the doctrine of the faith? That's the question I ask. Now, the answer, we must understand the rise of neo-modernism after Vatican II, which produced a hurricane of heretics and heresies from which we are still being buffeted today. Now, the council didn't produce it. The council was the occasion when the neo-modernists came out of the woodworks. The council said, we're not going to define anything, so we're not going to be a council of discipline. Nobody's going to be uh, said to be anathema-sit. This is a pastoral council. We just want to come out with the faith and invite the world to see how the church is interested in saving souls and bringing people to God and saving society. So when these neo-modernists, who were there all the time, because Pius XII, when he, was, when he asked his cardinals, should we have a council? They responded, no, Holy Father, because too much harm would come out of it the enemy is around. He's hidden. We know they are. We're reading their books. But they would, get, they would get controlled. So what he did, he said, I have to address these many errors. So he did. He wrote the encyclical called Humani Generis, in which all the errors that we're facing today, every one of them is in that encyclical. But for some reason or other, the intellectuals have ignored it. I call it the, uh, the uh, really the... Uh, uh, forgotten encyclical. They will not teach it, but everything's in there what's happening today. So Pius XII figured I will attack the heresies by writing an encyclical. He doesn't mention the names of the heretics, but anyone who reads the encyclical clearly and knows who was around it in those days knows the heretics that the Holy Father was approaching. One of the main ones was Teilhard de Chardin, who put all of theology on the basis of a false science put his complete faith in evolution, his complete faith that uh, original sin wasn't there, that all we needed was to evolve to a high state of self-consciousness, and the key point would that be, would the omega point would be Christ himself. Well, he makes Christ merely a natural evolution of the whole of the cosmos. And, of course, he tries to build a theology on that, and, of course, it's theology fiction, he tries to build a philosophy on that, and he falls flat on his face. And even the scientists say his, science is, his, his approach to science is completely novel. It's fiction, it's fantasy, but many of the nuns, 
and many priests are falling for it, and that virus is still in the minds of many a theologian today. So we say this, answering that question, we must understand the rise of neo-modernism at the Vatican II, the occasion of Vatican II, which produced a hurricane of heresies. The new theologians, they call themselves this, the new theologians, they call themselves the dissident theologians, they even call themselves the faithful dissident theologians. They like to give themselves good names, see. I call them the, some of them, many of them are porno theologians, see. And that fits them because they are attacking the church's teaching on sexual conduct. They, they espouse the immoral sexual conduct. Often they call themselves advocates of the theology of liberation. Because they're liberating people not from sin, Satan, and death, but from exploitation, poverty, uh, uh, illiteracy, and things like that, which have nothing to do with saving the soul. As such, they're side issues which the church does work on, but the first mission is instruct on the faith and liberate people from sin, Satan, and supernatural death. Get them ready for, to become saints. Anyway, they have been in the vanguard of rampant neo-modernism. Let's look at the demonic nature of modernism and its updated neo-modernism. Now, modernism, which I'll go to, is a child of the Protestant Revolution and the French Revolution. The former being a religious heretical movement, the French Revolution being a godless, laicized humanism. Modernism leads straight to atheism, and we're suffering from militant atheism behind the Iron Curtain and the Bamboo Curtain. And in the West, although we talk about God, we live as apostates, and that is what I call soft atheism. It's even worse than militant atheism, because militant atheism takes God seriously and tries to fight God, whereas... Soft atheism uses Christian words, goes through the, the convenient um, actions of being Christian, but at the same time lives, lives as pagans or as really apostates. The pagans didn't know Christ. An apostate leaves Christ after having known him. The arch-apostate, of course, was uh, and is to this day Judas, who knew Christ, saw the miracles, and then left him and sold him out. All right, modernism leads straight to atheism and the scourge of the world today. The essential error of modernism, wrote the distinguished Jesuit theologian of the last century, the essential error is, quote, is nothing less than the perversion of dogma, the critique of supernatural knowledge according to the false principles of contemporary philosophy. The Abbe Loisie, the father of modernism, agrees. Here's what he says. He died back. He was excommunicated by uh, St. Pius X for being a modernist. And he said about the Pope, he says, you know, people say that the Pope's hard on me, but I, he said, but the Pope was right. I haven't said Mass for 25 years, he said, secretly. And I don't believe in the Catholic faith. And Saint, and Pius X knew that, and that's why he excommunicated me. So even Wazee was able to see a holy man who spotted what his heresy was. But here's what... Loisy says about modernism, quote, In reality, all Catholic theology, even the fundamental principles, divine law, and the laws that govern the knowledge of God, come up for judgment before this new court of assize, a court of updated heretics. That's what's happening today. All these dogmas are coming up, the new theologians say, for re-evaluation. Well, when you do that, you, in, you include doubt. 
If you're reevaluating something, you're going to say, well, wait a minute, there must be something wrong with this. Let's look at it again. And once you, you insert doubt into people's minds, there goes the faith. See. So, Mr. Professor M. Paran of the University of Louvain wrote in his famous book, Modernism in the Church. He said this about it. He called it that humanitarian movement whose ambition is to eliminate God from all social life, close quotes. Following St. Pius X, who stigmatized modernism as the synthesis of all heresies, let us expose some of the basic errors of this vast congeries of falsities. Led by the agnostic philosophers, Catholic modernists accept immanentist evolutionary explanations of God, religion, dogma, the sacraments, scripture, the church, its magisterium. So that's what's happening today. All faith is subjected to science. They follow Taya the Shaddai. Because we have, uh, as a uh, friend, uh, another Catholic who fell away from the faith, as he said, well, man is too advanced to believe in all these miracles in, in the uh, Gospels and whatnot. He simply won't believe them anymore. He's too intelligent. He's graduated from superstition. That was uh, Heidegger, who tried to be a Jesuit priest and failed, and tried to be a secular priest and failed, and then went off and became an atheist, and became the philosopher of uh, our friend uh, Hitler. His last class before the war was Heil Hitler to his students, and he never came back to the church. But he was pushing this philosophy of science. We're too, we're too educated, we're too smart now to believe all of this stupid stupid miracle stuff that you find in the, the, the Bible. So, Teilhard is the updated modernist who has seduced many Catholics, bishops, priests, nuns, laity, into the heresy of evolutionist theology fiction. For the modernist, all faith is subjected to science and personal experience. In other words, faith is not an objective truth that God, entering history, brought us through his divine Son. No, faith rises out of the subjective experience of the person. That's subjectivism. Subjectivism means you impose on reality what you want to see there instead of taking from reality what is there and making it part of the uh, treasury of your truth. So that's what we have. Divine revelation is imperfect and therefore subject to continual indefinite progress corresponding with the progress of reason. Prophecies and the miracles of Scripture are the poetical imaginings of men. Dogma is merely man's approval of his refined formulas on religious experience. As experience changes and evolves, so must the dogma take on new, even contradictory historical meanings. All religions arise from experience and lead to salvation. There is the reason why we're not making converts today. So many priests tell people, stay where you are. You don't have to become a Catholic. You're in good faith, you'll be saved. This leads to indifferentism. If that were true, then why did Christ go to the trouble of coming on, becoming a man and dying to give us the truth? He could have stayed with the Holy Trinity and that beautiful glory and, and bliss. But St. Paul says, having joy set before him, he put aside that and chose the cross to give the true faith. Hence, we're living in an age when the zeal which is intensity of love, according to St. Thomas, to make converts, has that fire has almost gone out. They don't make converts today. 
because they've lost the faith or weakened the faith. So therefore, we are uh, these dogmas are the definitions of dogmas. Those take advantage over one another according on the liveliness or vividness of the formulas. Indifferentism follows with the result that it is considered devised to make converts to the Catholic faith. Now, the first aim of the modernists, and this is what <clears throat> is brought out again, is to convert the Church of Rome and then the Universal Church to a modernist, natural, humanistic church. Modernists insist that the Roman pontiff, quotes, the Roman pontiff can and ought to conform with contemporary progress, liberalism, and civilization, close quote. Really, they seek a church in their own image and likeness, a small Gnostic. See, the Gnostics always said that they knew more of than the ordinary Catholic church. They would give you the refined knowledge of the faith, and it always ended up a heresy. So that's exactly what the modernists are, even today. They're a small Gnostic elite group seeking a church made into their own image and likeness, not the church that God gave us through Christ. A small Gnostic elite of church of worldly-wise intellectuals scandalized that Christ founded his church for all men, especially for outcasts. It is small wonder that modernists exhibit an indifference and express an irreconcilable animosity to the custodian of Catholic truth, the magisterium. Today, modernism has re regrouped its forces under such titles as Catholic opposition, Catholic dissent, Catholic critics, or loyal Catholic dissenters. On November 17th and 18th, the Catholic modernists at an international assembly held in Lyons, France, in the year 1973, proclaimed their doctrines are what they call the new Christianity. Here are five of the main characteristics of why, of this heresy, and why the Holy Father had the right, the creator of the people of God. The first characteristic of this new Christianity is it's eaten out with an anthropocentrism. Man is the center of religion, not God. Anthropos in Greek means man. Man, not God, is the center of religion. God is to be found solely in the face, functions, and fortunes of man. God is loved and served solely for man, not for himself. The primacy of man is identified with the primacy of God. Indeed, God is demoted to the level of man. Man becomes his own God. The first commandment is abolished or absorbed into the second commandment, or to put it another way, the second commandment is promoted to being the first commandment. And the first commandment is canceled. The second characteristic of this new Christianity, imminence in the world. Everything is here. There's no hereafter. The kingdom of God is not hereafter. Salvation means liberation from social sin. That is, from ignorance, hunger, underdevelopment, economic exploitation, political oppression, personal sin is no longer relevant in today's historical context. The new Catholics, enlisting under socialism's banner, must achieve the kingdom of God by moving toward the collectivism of which formed a utopia in time, and forget about the utopia of the kingdom of heaven <coughs> in eternity. The third characteristic, the new evangelism. The true meaning of the Gospels, according to these people, is economic, not spiritual. 
arising from service to the poor, for the Gospels belong exclusively to the poor. Only the poor and their socialistic champions can understand them. The Magisterium has misinterpreted the meaning of the Gospels for the last 2,000 years, using them to exploit the poor and remain in power with the mighty of this world. The fourth characteristic is the new ecclesiology. The church, ecclesia, ecclesia is called church. The church is part of the world. She does not exist for herself, but she exists merely to serve the world in its humanitarian aspects. Hence, the church must dissolve all her own institutions. In her liturgical life, any members may function as priests, men, women, boys, girls. There's no such thing as a hierarchy. In her jurisdictional life, local churches must be autonomous, free of Roman control. For all religious authority comes from the faithful who share co-responsibility, even as the bishops share with the Pope collegiality. Although their interpretation of collegiality is that the Pope is just the Pope of Rome and he has no authority over any other diocese in the world. So you can see the autonomy of each diocese as well as each uh, parish. There is no primate for doctrine and morals in the church. Each person must follow his own mind and conscience. That's pure Protestantism, see. It's gotten into the church. The fifth characteristic is the new passion for Christ, the new love, zeal for Christ. But this passionate love is not for the Christ known to us as the God-man. Rather, it is the Christ who is only a human person, not a divine person. For the Christ who is the man for others, the friend, the humanitarian, the defender, the liberator of the poor. Indeed, it is a love for the Christ who is the super-revolutionary and the grand subverter, leading and aiding the poor to overthrow all corrupt institutions. And one of those corrupt institutions for the new Christianity is the institutional Roman Catholic Church. Here you have the five characteristics of the new Christianity. Incidentally, we've gone much further than that in the world of revel in the world of entertainment. The Christ of the last temptation of Christ is simply a lecturer, Christ, who is the Son of God. But he's the Christ who is really the the um, the lecturer as seen by the wickedness of Hollywood and Martin Scorsese, who has this fevered brain and imagination which can only see sex and can't see anything above sex. This is one of the lowest forms of blasphemy. But remember, all of this is part of the fruit of this new Christianity. As we lose our faith, the atheists and those that hate Christianity anyway become bolder and bolder and attack. They've attacked the Blessed Mother. They've attacked religious life. They are now attacking Christ, and I hear there's another movie on the way which makes it even makes our Lord appear like a hypocrite. He's a nice guy while it's daylight, and he's a wicked lecturer while it's nighttime. So they're planning a movie like that against Christ. All of this reminds me of what our Lord said. If you lose, if the salt loses its savor, there's nothing left but to throw it out and have it tramped upon. We're being tramped on because we've lost the savor of the faith. We've lost that zeal that loves, intensely loves the faith and will stand up and fight for the faith. 
we become, I guess what they call, you know, they call us, you know, uh, the kingdom of wimps. See? You know, Satan knew what he was doing when he got into the Garden of Eden, and this is an aside which I always like to bring in because it reminds me that Satan did not tempt the stronger of the two. Namely, Adam was not the stronger of the two. Eve was. He tempted her because he knew if I get her, I'll get the man. So when he tempted Eve, she gave him an argument. She fought with him in an argument way, saying, well, you know, if we eat that fruit, we'll die. And then Satan became the first uh, expert, exegete. Oh, I'll explain that to you, what God said. Don't worry about that. I'll give you. I have the last word on it. He means that if you eat the fruit, you won't die. You'll just be like him. You'll know good and evil. Well, everybody wants to be like God. So she ate the fruit and fell. But when she gives the fruit to Adam, we don't get a single word out of the guy. He just takes it. Not a single word of objection. He doesn't say, darling, if we eat that, we're dead. He eats it, so he's the first wimp. He never opened his mouth. <laughs> he never opened his mouth to argue with Eve and say, wait a minute now. We're not supposed to eat that fruit, see? So, you see, Satan knew what he was doing. And even today, I'm afraid, and I, sh I, I probably will be crucified for saying this, uh, I think women are the ones that will convince bishops more than priests convincing bishops, or even priests convincing priests, because uh, they are afraid of women. They just, uh, uh, they just don't know how to handle them. I mean, they don't know the psychology of a woman. See, I mean, a feminist can run a bishop around all over the place, and he... He has to run away because he can't handle that type of thing. But the reason is because he doesn't have what St. Ignatius says, such a tremendous love of the faith that if anyone attempts to uh, dilute it, falsify it, he slaps him down. It's a slap of charity, of course. St. Augustine says that if we don't correct those that are in error, then we don't love them, we hate them. If we have to correct them, even with a certain amount of firmness and strength, we're doing an act of love for them because we're saving them from their own damnation. So there's the, where we are. Now, what are relying on these errors, the cradle of the people of God reasserts the truths of Catholicism thus. One, a religion of man would be deny God and produce a decapitated love for man. Man is only lovable because God loves him. Get rid of God, and man's just another animal. There's no reason why you can't kill him, make use of him as a means to an end. Get rid of his image and likeness to God and the fact that Christ died for him. Then there's no reason for loving him, really. Except maybe survival, but then survival is not the best reason. It won't hold up on the, on the trial for loving someone. So if you get rid of God with that first act of the uh, anthropocentrism, you can't love man because it's a decapitated love. There's no reason for loving man, which is the most important reason, namely because God loves him and died for him and made him into his own image and likeness and wants us to love one another. Therefore, God the Holy Trinity loves him, made him in his own image and likeness, sent his Son to become man and died to redeem him, and his Holy Spirit to sanctify him, making him a member of the communion of saints, destined to enjoy perfect happiness. The second thing, namely, eminence. If you put God and revelation and truth in the straitjacket of time and space so that 
man becomes what I, what I call keeper of the cosmic cage of the, of the world, not allowing God to come in to tell us about our faith. You put man in a straitjacket of imminence, and the faith in him, this prevents salvation. Man cannot save himself. He is not capable of pulling himself up by his bootstraps from original sin and from slavery to Satan, who is a spiritual being infinitely more powerful than human beings. We need a divine human being to save man. And so if you put God as only the evolution of man's experiences in time and there's no hereafter, and God can't come into history and tell us how to be our Savior, then, of course, we're lost. Because salvation is only in the divine person of the incarnate Christ from entering man's history. It denies, when you have this straitjacket of immanentism, it denies the eschatological kingdom that we are eventually made to be beyond. We're pilgrims. Well, real utopia is in heaven. The kingdom of Christ and reduces man and religion to being the slaves of mere political ideology. The creed reasserts. Man's supernatural redemption in the life, death, and resurrection of the God-man with a promise that we too will rise to be like him for all eternity if we follow him and are faithful to him. Then the next thing are the Gospels, the new teaching of the Gospels, that they're just meant for the poor. The Gospels belong exclusively to the Catholic Church. The Bible does. Who put the Bible together? The Catholic Church did. They were all separate books. But who was the one that was able to come and say, this is divinely inspired, this is not. This is divinely inspired, this is not. Only the church, because she's the only one that has the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and in making these decisions, she's infallibly guided by the Holy Spirit. You might tell your Protestant friends sometimes that really, where, where, do, they, where do they think they got the Bible? They got it from the Catholic Church. They were all separate books until the church put it together and said, this is inspired, this is not. Apocryphal writings and not inspired. Anyway, she alone puts the books together and she alone possesses the Holy Spirit who is the author of these inspired writings. The church is infallible in declaring which books are inspired by the Holy Spirit and which are not. The Holy Spirit guiding us so she cannot make a mistake in this matter. The Gospels belong not just to the poor, but to all men. Christ came to save everybody. And his message given to the apostles and the evangelists who rose. It's for everybody. It's not just for the poor. It's for the rich. It's for the middle-income people. It's for everybody. They belong to all, not just to the poor. They teach of spiritual liberation from sin, Satan, and eternal death, not from merely economic slavery, or do they teach of an earthly utopia. For the Catholic Church, the new ecclesiology, the cradle of the people of God teaches us that the Catholic Church is the unique creation of Christ and his Holy Spirit. She is in the world, but not of the world. She's not the welfare arm of the socialistic state. She is above. She transcends the state. She cooperates with the state in defending the Ten Commandments and morality and the religion that Christ has revealed, but she's not subservient to the state at all. She's superior to it. Her authority does not come from men. It comes from God, the Son of God, down to Peter and into his church. So, she's in the world, but not of the world. Her mission is supernatural, and during man's pilgrimage on earth, she works for his spiritual salvation, supernatural. She will last forever, 
rising from time and the tribulations of time through the way of the cross to eternity in glory with a glorified master in heaven. So, she's not subservient. The state will not last. States will be wiped out. At the end of time, there's no need for political life. Where with God? Perfect happiness. So all of this transitoriness of politics and the state... And by the way, there's no salvation from politics, although some people think there is. There's only salvation from Christ. So that's all going to pass away. The church is not. She's going to become glorified, divinized for all eternity. Again, we have uh, Christ as the new passion for Christ, the, the revolutionary Christ. The Christ of the modernist is not the Christ of history. He's a figment of the modern, modernist imagination. Just as the Christ of the last temptation is not the Christ of history. He's the Christ of the diseased and fevered brain of Martin Scorsese and also the uh, universal moguls at the universal pictures who wanted to put that Christ out on the film. Now, art... Father Greeley says, oh, it's very artistic. And he, by the way, if you read his article in, in the New York Times, he has a fantasy of Christ uh, with uh, Mary Magdalene, which is every bit as dirty and as filthy as the picture is. So I wonder if he, was a, if he wasn't an, a, a, you know, a consultant to the making of the picture. See, I go after him in an article which I sent to the remnant called uh, uh, Movie Mobsters, Assassins of Truth. He has a horrible, and the New York Times printed a big article, all in front, almost front page, a lot of it front page. Well, now here, we know, for example, that uh, when you're making a movie about a historical figure who's well-known, you've got to stay at the truth. Otherwise, you're making a movie about somebody that never existed. We got the good example of a movie that was done well about a man that was well-known, and it was done by a Protestant uh, was his name Bolt? His first name was uh, Thomas, not Thomas Bolt, Robert Bolt. His Man for All Seasons is an excellent movie because he studied the life of St. Thomas More. He studied the tri trial. He got the statements of his enemies and what John said and of the family. When he put that together in a movie, you had a, a grand work of art. You have a masterpiece when you see that because you know... St. Thomas More, as he existed in the tragedy of his day, giving his life for the faith. Why couldn't they have done that with Christ? Because they hate Christ and they hate the Catholic Church. So they had to falsify. So it's not art. It's propaganda. You can't call it art. So the Christ of the modernists is a, a, a counterfeit Christ, the fantasy of the diseased heretical mind and imagination. The Christ of the modernists is tailored to the image of Marxist ideology and is created to push Marxist propaganda. Now, the philosopher George Santayana, he really didn't like modernism, and he went after it hammer and tongs in a nice book that he wrote called Winds of Doctrine. He makes a trenchant critique of modernism. He says, quote, Modernism is the love of all Christianity in those who perceive that it is all a fable. It is the historical attachment to his church of a Catholic who has discovered that he is a pagan, an apostate. Continue on what, what uh, Santiana says. The modernists are men of the Renaissance, pagan, pantheistic in their profoundest sentiment, to whom the hard and narrow realism of official Christianity is offensive, just 
because it presupposes that Christianity is true. As for modernism, he continues, it is suicide. It is the last of those concessions to the spirit of the world which half-believers and double-minded prophets have always been found making. But it is a mortal concession. It concedes everything, for it concedes that everything in Christianity, as Christians hold it, is an illusion. And remarking, and now that closes that quotation, and then remarking wryly on the modernist opposition to Rome, Santiana writes, and I quote, the modernist feels himself full of love for everybody except for the Pope, close quotes. Here then is updated modernism, which the cradle of the people of God was confessed, has, was created to destroy. For modernism is the new styled cradle of religious revolution. It is militant, revolutionary, socialistic, Marxist. It advocates a theology of violence, a morality of total sexual permissiveness, the sure way of destroying this disease is that of total dedication to the teaching of the Apostolic See of Rome. He speaks in vain, wrote St. Maximus in the 6th century, who tries to persuade me of the orthodoxy of those who refuse the teachings of His Holiness, the Pope, and of the Most Holy Church to Rome, of Rome. Close quotes. And Cardinal Newman now, great prophet that he was, of our day, incidentally, a hundred years ago, he saw this thing that was going to happen today. He saw that because he came out of uh, Protestantism, and he saw that Protestantism, he called it the, a religion of reason, that Protestantism had already reduced what little they had left of Christianity to being a religion of reason. And he says, I thank God that if that hasn't happened to the Catholic Church he says, I can, I become a Catholic, I can see the enemy opposite me, and I can know how to fight him. But, he says, I see a day when the enemy will get into the church. The religion of reason will be fighting with the religion of revelation. And then, the faithful Catholics of those days, and I thank God I won't have to suffer the way will, they will. They will be shot at, they'll be caught in a crossfire from the enemy's outside, and from the enemies inside the church. My dear listeners, we're living in that age today. We're, we are in a crossfire. The enemies outside will make movies like The Last Temptation of Christ and uh, The Hail Mary, and uh, they'll get the Supreme Court to make decisions we can't pray in school, and it's all right to legalize the murder of innocents and whatnot. But the enemies inside, so-called priests and bishops who go along with this, they're shooting at us from inside, we're supposed to be expecting from them guidance to holiness and fighters for the faith. Instead, we have, as I said before, people who have joined the world. Cardinal Lumen said this. He quotes, and I quote this, Be our mind as heavenly as it may be, most loving, most holy, most zealous. Yet if we look off from Christ and his church for one moment and look towards ourselves, at once these excellent tempers fall into some extreme or mistake. Charity becomes over-easiness. Holiness is tainted with pride. Zeal degenerates into fierceness. Activity eats up the spirit of prayer. Hope is heightened into presumption. We cannot guide ourselves. God's revealed word is our sovereign rule of conduct. And therefore, among other reasons, 
It is the Catholic faith that is so principal a grace given to us by God. For that is, it is the directing power which receives the commands of Christ and applies them to the hearts of all the faithful. Close quotes of Cardinal Newman. Now, the modernist is a person who trusts in himself alone. He has lost his faith in Christ and the church and the doctrines, but he cannot steel himself to admit this. Therefore, he has to fill the traditional dogma with new content. He uses the right words. God, Christ, eternal life, grace, the kingdom of heaven, sin, salvation, hell, resurrection, salvation, forgiveness, religious life, vows, celibacy, priesthood, etc. But he empties them all of any supernatural meaning so that you have a, no, a whole new vocabulary. Things don't mean what they used to mean and still do mean in the Catholic Church. So the more the modernist dilutes the faith, for him, the more a doctrine changes or morals shift, the more he moves to betray Christ and the church, the faithful church, and to serve mammon, the idols of libido, sex, the world, comfort, pleasure, the flesh, and the devil. The creator of the people of God now professes gladly and openly faith in the Holy Trinity, in the Father who is eternally begets the Son, in the Son, the Word of God, who is eternally begotten, and who becomes man and saves mankind from sin, and who is divine. He destroys the kingdom of Satan and brings us to eternal life. The, the creator of the people of God believes in the Holy Spirit, the uncreated person of truth and holiness, who proceeds from the Father and Son as their eternal love, and who works for the sanctification of all men, especially of members of the church, and its uh, communion of saints. The church teaches about the fall of man, about original sin, how man is delivered from the slavery of this fall through baptism. She teaches that all men have become victims of this fall, except the Holy Mother of God, preserved by the Holy Word of God, who took her as his immaculate mother so that he could attain human nature and offer himself as priest and victim on the cross to wipe out sin and its eternal effects. The credo teaches that during his earthly life, Jesus formed his church, gave her supernatural, life-giving sacraments, and made her the mystical body that could save all men. The credo teaches that this mystical body of Christ can be recognized by its outstanding marks, spiritual marks. It is one holy Catholic and apostolic. It teaches, the credo does, that the church is necessary for salvation. It renders, therefore, that because of Christ, who is the head, the only Savior, and that, and he's the sole mediator in the way of salvation, rendering himself present to us in his body, which is the church. And this divine design of salvation embraces all men. And those who without fault, this is the church's teaching, those who without fault on their part do not know the gospel of Christ and his church. But at the same time, they sincerely seek God with the light of their conscience, and under the influence of whatever grace God gives them, they endeavor to do God's will as recognized through the promptings of their conscience. They will be saved also, but in connection with the church, because all salvation comes from the head of the church, who is our Lord Jesus Christ. The grace he's won for all men, even those that never hear about him, but try to follow the light of conscience. They will be saved. They can, as the credo says, they, in a number known only to God, can obtain salvation.
The Credo proclaims that the Mass, celebrated by the priest, representing the person of Christ, by virtue of the power received through the sacrament of holy orders, and offered by him in the name of Christ and the members of the mystical body, that the priest is the sacrifice of Calvary, rendered sacramentally present on our altars. It proclaims that as the bread and wine are consecrated by the Lord at the Last Supper would change into his body and blood, which were to be offered for us on the cross. Likewise, the bread and wine consecrated by the priest are changed into the body and blood of Christ, but the Christ who is enthroned in glory in heaven, for Christ can only die once. And it proclaims that the mysterious presence of the Lord under the appearance of bread and wine becomes the food and life of the souls of those who receive him through transubstantiation, the changing of bread and wine into the real body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorified Christ, whom we receive in Holy Communion. Again, the church proclaims that Christ is the perfect high priest, the perfect sacrificial victim, and the perfect altar of sacrifice, which is situated, the altar, in his sacred humanity. He's the one. The credo professes that the kingdom of God, begun here below in the church of Christ, is not of this world, whose form is passing away, and that its proper growth cannot be confounded with the progress of civilization, of science, or of human technology, but that the, the proper growth of the church consists in an ever more profound knowledge of the unfathomable riches of Christ, an ever stronger hope in eternal blessings, and an ever more ardent response to the love of God an ever more generous bestowal of grace and holiness among men. The cradle says that the church is this love of God which induces her to concern herself also constantly about the temporal welfare of man. The church is not oblivious to the needs of man's temporal life. But notice, she doesn't put those needs up front. They are... The first is, is eternal salvation, but flowing out of that charity is she helps the body. It's the church, by the way, who really founded the first leprosariums. I was last year in Honolulu to give a couple of lectures at Hawaii, and I just couldn't resist the temptation to fly over to the island of Molokai and see what wonderful things uh, Father Damien did, who will be canonized, sacrificing himself completely for these lepers, who are still there, by the way. I met many of them. They have a sulfurous drug that doesn't heal it, but does uh, uh, restrict the growth of the leprosy. It sort of stagnates it. And they go around, they have their families, their homes. And here is a wonderful missionary who gave his whole life, not only to bring these people to Christ, which he did, but to help them spirit, physically. Their homes, he built the, the sewerage system. He uh, had had homes, and the church was built by him. He the confession of all all the things that that one man did make, makes a person today like myself feel, gee, what have I done for Christ compared to what Damien of, of did for Christ in the, in the lepers whom Christ identifies himself with. So it's the church that finds the orphanages, the homes for unwed mothers who have to have children. I remember being in a, when I was down in um, Louisiana as a Jesuit, I was a chaplain too, uh, just such a home where unwed mothers came and the nuns were running it, and they had their children. They didn't come. They didn't perform abortions. They had their children. They had the sacraments. They were in union with the church. Some and they put their children up to adoption with very good families. 
There was no need of making a second mistake by murder instead of, the, after the first mistake of maybe uh, pregnancy outside of wedlock. No, the church is there to help people in their physical needs. She was there long before the state became a welfare state. She was the one that does it. And the Pope today, whenever he sees a great catastrophe, a flood here or earthquake there, immediately he sends out relief, both in the form of a lot of money and also in the form of a lot of food and medicine. So the church is not unconcerned about the temporal welfare of men. Without ceasing to recall to her children that they have not here a lasting city, the church urges them to contribute to the just welfare of this earthly city, to promote justice, peace, brotherhood. The credo expresses belief in life eternal, in the salvation of souls who die friends of Christ. The credo believes in the resurrection of the body and soul. The credo believes in the virginity of the Blessed Mother, in her immaculate conception, in her virginal birth, in her role as the, the cooperator with Christ in saving, helping to save mankind. Mary has a high place in the theology of the church, which is expressed in the credo. The credo believes that those who are enemies of Christ and don't come back will unfortunately be damned for all eternity. The credo believes in hell, although many Catholics today don't want to believe in that. Oh, they say some people, even great scholars say, well... Hell's going to be emptied out at the end. God will just simply, he can't be that uh, uh, hard on people. He'll get them all out of hell to go to heaven. Of course, that makes God a very, very uh, mushy type of uh, tri-personal God, see? In other words, he doesn't care too much because we know that the angels in hell will never repent of their sins. Now, nothing defiled can get into heaven. If they don't repent of their sins... They're never going to get to heaven. St. Thomas says, an angel had such clear knowledge of what he was doing. He wasn't like us. We have to think through a body and have our passions bother us. That when they chose to go against God, they chose to do that eternally. They'll never change their minds. And hence, how can they get to heaven? They can't, of course. After all, God doesn't change his mind either. And when Christ tells us, he who believes shall be saved to his apostles, and he who does not believe shall be condemned or damned, then Christ is telling the truth. Again, the Creator expresses a belief in the communion of saints here and hereafter, for it looks forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. With this wonderful document we say, Blessed be the thrice holy God, the Holy Trinity, for giving us this magnificent pearl of great price, the cradle of the people of God. God bless you.